And uh, it's uh, worth uh, opening your Bibles to back to page 188, uh, where you'll find Deuteronomy 9, or at least you'll find it uh, in the church Bibles on that page, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9. And on the back of the service sheets, uh, you'll see an outline uh, of where we're going to be heading uh, tonight as we look at this next part of Deuteronomy together. We're, we're in the second week of a three-week series uh, looking at uh, Deuteronomy 8 uh, through to Deuteronomy 10. There's much to love uh, about being a Christian and the Christian life and we've celebrated many of those things tonight already together as, as we have sung and uh, we've prayed together and as we have said the words of the creed, we have uh, spoken together about what we are in on as Christians and there is much that we are in on together. In fact, I think it's one of the great things and one of the great reasons to meet together as we do tonight to remind each other of just what we are in on as Christians. There's so many good things that are ours now because of our God's grace, because of his son, the Lord Jesus But for me, what makes the Christian life so wonderful is not just what I have now because of God's grace, but that I know the best is yet to come, that heaven, God's great promise, the places he is preparing for those that love him, is just around the corner. A place where where the great enemies that, that stalk this world and stalk all of humanity will be swept away in an instant. God will go before us, we're told in the Bible, and he will destroy death forever and in its place bring life and immortality to light forever. We're told our mourning will turn into dancing, our tears he'll dry them himself and our pain, well in its place will come joy and singing and celebration. Yes, the best is yet to come. We'll live like we have never known before and that for me is why I love being a Christian. So let me ask you, if the best is yet to come, do you ever dream about what is yet to come? Do you ever daydream about heaven, about what it's going to be like, what we will see there, what what we will do there, the the dimensions of it, all the details? Do Do you ever think about it, daydream? Do you ever imagine that moment as you enter heaven and and you see all around you people from every language, tribe and nation and you see them all celebrating together? Do you you ever imagine that moment? I imagine that. We'll get there after being a Christian for some time, whether it's a few years of our lives or a Christian or, or a whole lifetime. And we'll start to look around and there'll be that moment when we think, yes, it was worth it. It was worth sticking at it as a Christian. It was worth all the tough calls I made along the way. It was worth giving up so much of my time and my talents and my resources for Christian things. Yes, it was worth it. Have a look at this place. The best is yet to come. And as as you imagine that moment uh, standing uh, in heaven, I suspect that for many of us, myself included, it will be hard to hold back the feeling that perhaps at least up to a point I deserve to be there. Especially if I've been a Christian for a while. That I'm going to get to the end of life and say, this is what my life was about for so many years. This was the cause I was working towards. I was committed to this for so long and here I am, I worked hard for this. Maybe just up to a point I deserve to be here. And it becomes especially hard to hold back that feeling uh, when we look around 
And we see others who've become Christians a lot later in life than us, the Johnny-come-latelys, who haven't done the hard yards that we've done along the way. And yes, you're stoked for them and you think, how good is God's grace? But it's hard not to think that just, just to, a, to a certain point that maybe I have more right to be there than them. Well, let me say, if that feeling ever comes your way, even just a little bit, and I reckon it's a danger that we can all fall into, then Deuteronomy 9 is what we need to hear. You remember, if you were here last week, that the whole book of Deuteronomy is really three sermons uh, that Moses gives to God's people on, on the edge of their promised land, on the edge of the promise of this great place that God had prepared for them, a good land. They sit just inside of it, just on the edge of the land. And so Moses is speaking, reminding them of the things that they cannot forget as they enter that land. Have a look what he says as we continue this sermon in verse 1. He says, Hear, O Israel, you are now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. Moses describes the sort of people that they will confront as they go into this land, huge people, unbeatable nations, And yet God has prepared this place for them. It is theirs for sure. God will deliver it himself. He'll go before them. And then after assuring them that it is theirs, that there is no doubt that it's coming to them, he then fires a triple-barreled warning shot across their bow in verses 4 and 5 and 6. A warning shot for anyone who thinks they deserve to be there. Have a look at verse 4. Do not say to yourself... The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No. Verse 5. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of this land. And then just in case we've missed the point, he says it again in verse 6. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this land to possess. It's hard to miss the point. In three short verses he sweeps away any sort of smug self-righteousness that we might have about the things that God is preparing for those that trust him. And so having swept that away, he now goes about in the rest of this chapter fixing our faulty vision, fixing the sort of things that would make us ever think that we deserve that land, that we would deserve heaven. And essentially what Moses says for the rest of this chapter is he says if, you, if you're going to know for certain that you will enter the promised land, that you will enter heaven. And if you're going to know for certain that it's got nothing to do with you, then there's three things that you need to remember along the way. You see them in verse 7 to 24. And the first of them is this. As you wait for heaven, remember that you are stiff-necked. Stiff-necked. How would you describe your relationship to God? How would you describe the way you respond to his word and his ways? Well, this is how God describes his people in verse 6. Stubborn, stiff-necked. Verse 7, rebellious. Verse 13, stiff-necked indeed. Moses gives them proof of this assessment 
by showing in their response that one of the key moments leading up to the promised land, the moment when God gathered them at Mount Horeb, have a look at verse 8. I mean, if there was ever a time to respond to the Lord with faithfulness, without stubbornness, then this was it. I mean, Mount Horeb, the, the, the mountain that God gathered his people after rescuing them out of Egypt, it was essentially the wedding venue, if you like, where God bound himself to his people forever, where he promised himself to them. If there is ever a moment to be faithful, it is your wedding day. Have a look at what he did in verses 9 and 10. The one true living God bound himself to this people. He gathered them. We're told in verse 10 the the word assembled. He assembled them. But really it's the word we use for church. He brought them close together, brought them right to his glorious presence and then he spoke to them. Words, Deuteronomy 30 tells us, are words of life. He told them everything that they would need to flourish, everything that they would need for life and salvation. He promised and then he spoke. And while this was taking place, as God promised himself to them with big, bold, gracious words, as he looked to see his bride as he was doing this, this is what he saw in verse 12. The people have become corrupt. They've turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have cast, made a cast idol for themselves. They've become corrupt. This moment, this wonderful moment, this wedding ceremony that we're witnessing in verses 9 and 10 is now horribly marred. What was a good and right and pure and true moment is now ruined by his bride. How? Well, just as her groom makes his promises, makes his vows to her, she does two things in verse 12. Firstly, even while he is speaking, she turns away. As he speaks his commands, commands that aren't burdensome, but are ones that lead to life and joy and peace, as he says those words, she simply turned away. I mean, can you imagine anything more offensive or heartbreaking for a groom mid-vow than to have her turn away? Well, there is something what she does next. Not only does she turn away, but she turns to an idol, a golden cow of all things. And it is this that wins her trust, her fidelity, her love. No wonder he says uh, what he does in verse 13, they are a stiff-necked people indeed. And the problem for Israel is this wasn't a one-off event. It's not like a little blip in an otherwise great relationship. In fact, it set the scene for their marriage from that day forward. If you have a look at at verses 22 to 24, you get a catalogue of similar events. As they turned away again and again, as they turned towards idols again and again. And so Moses concludes of them in verse 24, you have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I've known you. There's not been a day where this hasn't been the case. As I looked at this picture of God's people at Horeb this week, uh, you want to say, I'd never be like that when it comes to God. When it comes to the way I respond to him, I'm just not like that. But the longer you look, 
the more you see how all too easily we can respond the same way. Turning away as he speaks to us. Having our hearts wooed by others. Whether it be turning away that comes when we allow ourselves to get deeper and deeper into a relationship that we know is drawing us away from him. Drawing us away from his voice. Away from finding satisfaction and identity in him alone. We turn away even though he is calling us to love him with all our heart and soul and mind. Because you've never been loved like this. You've never felt valued by another person the way you do right now. Never felt more beautiful. Never had another's undivided attention. And so each day your ear turns away from his voice, the voice that warns you, and towards the one that says he needs you or she needs you. And sometimes it's not just us individually, it can even happen to us as a church. Here we are, a church as part of a big church, if you like, the Church of England. It can happen when we allow ourselves to hold up something like human unity as the great good, even at the expense of our God's honour, even at the expense of his name, even when the head of the church, the real head, the one who I owe loyalty to above all else, the Lord Jesus, even as he is diminished, It happens when I continue to claim fellowship with those who would mock his word and ways. Then I know I'm turning away from his voice and listening to another. You see, the picture of Horeb is not that far from us. It happens when we convince ourselves that it's okay that I'm a workaholic, to put in insane hours, to ignore God's call, to rest, to set aside time for him to enjoy him aside from my labours because I convinced myself that that doesn't apply to me because, you know what, I'm, I need to put in these hours and I'm doing significant stuff, stuff that helps people, stuff that changes things for people. I'm a doctor. I'm a vicar. And so all of a sudden it's my significant work that becomes my idol. That's not to mention the countless time that, that God gathers us as he does tonight or in our small groups, or even as we open his word and we hear his voice. We hear his call to change and we vow to do it and then just life gets in the way. Or we hear his call to to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us. But rather than bend the knee in prayer, we decide it would be just quicker to get on with it and fix it ourselves. You are a stiff-necked people, says God. Now the problem with being stiff-necked, with being stubborn is is that in our culture the the trait of stubbornness is almost a virtue, isn't it? An endearing fault at worst. Oh, he's just stubborn. That's just the way he is. When we dismiss our stubbornness towards God as that, it's just our way. We need to hear the second thing that Moses calls to our memories in this passage. You are stiff-necked, secondly, Your problem is serious. I have uh, a friend uh, by the name of Scott and uh, Scott uh, really all the way through life was ahead of his time in so many ways really. 
But uh, probably the most obvious standout way early on for him was just the sheer size of the guy uh, in early childhood. In junior school he was head and shoulders above every other uh, student at school and uh, he was huge, he was tall and he was hairy, very hairy. Uh, He had a beard before high school. And uh, one of the great benefits of Scott's enormous size and power at such a young age is he was a shoe-in for all the rugby teams. We just put him up the front and he'd just mow down the opposition and everyone just followed in behind. He was an awesome rugby player, absolutely incredible. That was until one day uh, on the main oval uh, of our school, he was in a scrum as he'd been uh, lots of other times and it had collapsed. And like so many times before, there was Scott on the bottom of the pile with the ball in his hands. But this time he was on his back and he was motionless. His whole back and neck were sort of locked and, and he couldn't move. And he started to try to move and he kept saying, I'm okay, I'm okay, it's fine. And eventually wiser heads came round to him and said, look Scott, you're not okay. This is serious. Whatever you do, don't move. And it took a while for him to realise the situation he was in. That if he moved, that was it. Paralysed for life. Now Deuteronomy 9 says our problem is much more serious than that. See how God responds to our stubbornness in verse 8. He was angry enough to destroy you. And uh, when he says that, it's not just some sort of marital hyperbole, you know, I I could just kill you. No, this is his righteous, calm, but angry response to our rebellion. He says it again in verse 14. Let me alone so that I may destroy them. I mean, could things get any more serious Their life hangs by a thread. The noose is around their stiff necks. Let me ask you, do you feel this way? Even for a moment. That your whole life, your future, hangs by a thread. I'm not sure I do. You see, our problem is we just don't get it. When uh, When it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to the way we respond to his word and our stubbornness towards it, We think we're doing okay, that that we're finding our feet. But our measurement of okay is totally corrupted. I was thinking about that uh, this week and uh, I've got into a bit of a rhythm uh, of finally going to the gym and uh, my torture of choice at the gym is the treadmill. And I've started to kid myself into thinking that I'm I'm doing okay at uh, the, the treadmill and this is how I kid myself into doing that. What I do is when I get there, I scan across the room and I look for the person who is clearly struggling the most on the treadmill and I position myself next to that person and off I go and I power along and then I glance across as if to say, look who's the champ. And uh, I'm getting quite proud of my efforts, five kilometres in 30 minutes and uh, there I was uh, nearing the end of one of these five kilometre runs and uh, I was starting to think, yeah, I'm, I'm heading towards a new world record here, 29 minutes and 57 seconds. And uh, just as I'm getting to the, near the end of it, there's a, there's a screen in front of the treadmills, and this, this happened a few weeks ago while the Olympics was on, and just at the same time, it was amazing, there was a 5,000 metre race was on at the Olympics, and I thought, oh, I'll just pretend I'm in it. <laughs> and off I go, I'm running in this race, and they're getting to the final lap, 
and they're coming running in and finishing just as I'm finishing. And so there I am ready to sort of raise my arms as if I'm the Olympic champ. And I notice uh, my time of 29.57 isn't quite the same as their time of 13 minutes. (laughs) And that was just a heat. All of a sudden my smug self-delusion was over. And that's what Deuteronomy 9 does for us. We need to stop measuring our response to God by the lowest common denominator. We take a few steps in godliness and we think we've run a marathon. You know, I used to tell big lies and now I only tell the little white ones and that's just to be kind to people. I used to sleep around and now it's only the occasional lustful thought or website. And sometimes it's not even the small steps of progress that, that, that make me kid myself. It's, it's a far more fundamental mistake I make when I actually think I'm okay already. don't need to change. I've never lied. That, that's never been my problem. I've never slept with anyone except my wife. Haven't I done well? I'm not as bad as some. I'm kind and I'm generous-hearted towards my colleagues. I, I avoid the caustic banter at work. But, and here's the reality check that Deuteronomy 9 gives us, there is still a massive chasm between how I respond to God and what he rightly expects of me. I'm stiff-necked again and again, turning away from his word when it asks too much of me, when it questions my behaviour, when it turns upside down my agenda, my plans, my aspirations. And again and again I find myself turning to the idols that really prop me up. We need to see what God sees in our lives, corruption, a turning away from him towards many false gods. And we need to know that's not okay because God has bound himself to you. He wants your heart, soul and mind He wants you to trust him enough to walk in his ways because they lead to life. He wants you to love him the way he loves you. He wants your fidelity to him to be like his to you. He longs for these things as a husband would. But instead the God who loves us and speaks to us finds again and again us turning away. And so he says no, We're not okay. In fact, let me alone that I may destroy them. Understand then that that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess. Verse 6. It's a remarkable verse, isn't it? First, for what we have already seen clearly tonight, that it is not because of our righteousness But even more remarkable is that in spite of this, the verse still says, the Lord your God is giving you this good land. How is that possible? How can those two things stay together, that we are stiff-necked and yet he gives us the land? Well, that's where the third thing that Moses wants us to remember comes in. You are stiff-necked. Your problem is serious. But God's solution is wonderful. His solution? Someone comes and pleads our case before God. Someone stands between God's anger towards us and ourselves 
Have a look at verses 18 and 19. See what Moses did for the people at Horeb. Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. I ate no bread and I drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so provoking him to anger. I feared the anger and the wrath of the Lord for he was angry enough to destroy you. At last, someone who knows how serious the problem is, someone who actually pleads before God, who knows our sin matters, who sees it for the evil that it is, someone who knows God will judge sin, but most importantly, someone who has God's ear. And what happens when one like this pleads before the Lord on our behalf? Do you see it there in verse 19? Again, the Lord listened. What is it that keeps Israel safe for 40 years in the desert? Through 40 years of stubbornness, one spoke in their defence day after day and God mercifully listened. Let me ask you, what, what do you think it is that keeps you safe on the way to heaven? It's the same thing. One speaks in our defence and God listens. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses speaks of the one God would raise up after him, the one who, like Moses, would represent us before God. But here's the spectacular mercy of God. He doesn't just raise up another one like Moses, just another man to plead before him. No, the one he raises up is a son pleading before his father. The one who speaks in our defence is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Have a look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It's a verse that we read very regularly after we have prayed a prayer of confession as we've done already tonight. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. If anyone does sin... We have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He knows our sin. He sees how evil it is as a response to our good God. He sees the damage it does. He knows God must judge. But he knows God will listen. And what happens when he pleads on our behalf? Do you see it? 1 John 2, 2. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. And here's the bit that made me tremble this week. I think we know that. I think we know he speaks to the Father in our defence. But do we know he does it all the time? that there's not a moment in my Christian life where he is not speaking to the Father in my defence, that every day my future hangs by a thread, that every day he is the one holding me safe, that there's still nothing that I'm bringing to the table, that as he stands before his Father and they say to each other, knowing the sacrifice that Christ has already paid, they say, it is enough and forgiveness comes. Are you aware that that is happening every day of your life? Every day he's interceding for you, for the massive problem you have. 
The problem that could see your life and your future snuffed out in an instant. Every day he stands before his father with all the wounds that he suffered that day so long ago for us. And the father and the son and the spirit say to each other, it is enough. Let mercy come. Let forgiveness come. And so he takes our sin. And as it's pictured for us in Deuteronomy 9 verse 21, he throws it away where it can never come back again. Every day he pleads for your life and every day God listens. You know, I remember speaking to Scott uh, in hospital after this accident on the rugby field and, and he recalled how slowly he did come to his senses. Lying there on the field, kept, kept saying, I'm okay, I'm okay. And they just kept saying to him, no mate, you're not okay. Don't move, help is coming. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, let me say the same to you and me. We're not okay, but don't move. Jesus, he is our help. He'll keep us safe. Don't move. Let me ask you what I asked at the start. Do you ever daydream about heaven? About what it will be like or what you'll do when you get there? All the things that might be there. All the good things you enjoy here, will cricket be there? I hope cricket will be there. Will beaches, mountains, holidays, will all these things be there? I suspect they're the sort of things we daydream about. And then we get to the pictures that the Bible gives us of heaven and we get a bit confused. Let me give you one of the pictures from Revelation 5. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. I remember thinking uh, as, as a younger Christian and I still think it from time to time, you, you see that picture of heaven being about us all gathered around a throne singing forever. And it's hard to think that might get a bit boring after a while. I do like singing, I, li- I like music, but, but where are the beaches? I suspect we feel that way because we all too easily forget what we have been reminded of in Deuteronomy tonight, that every day my life hangs by a thread. And when I get to heaven, there on the throne will be the one who kept me safe every day. I suspect when I get there I won't be worried about cricket. I'll be joining the angels and every creature under heaven in singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Amen.